Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordina Osban, here with my friend and Chabrita Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachat Shabbat, Pei Vav, 86. So today we're going to have the final Mishnah uh, in that series of four Mishnayot that rely on an Esmachta to learn its Halacha. And so we're going to read it today together and then have a little bit of a discussion. Um, it's certainly, I would say, this is, again, one of these sort of squeamish topics that we see that the Gemara likes to deal with sometimes. So basically, the Gemara wants to know, how do we know that a woman who emits semen on the third day after she has intercourse would be considered to be Tame? And they base this on a verse, right, that you should be, um, I think I mentioned this when I learned with many of you, uh, that this is what we would call the nes nistar that my father would refer to, where when you're learning something that actually is very relevant to what's going on today. So just so everybody knows, we're actually recording this before Shavuos to be released after Shavuos. And this is a Pasuk from Shemot, Perak Yutet, Pasuk Tetvav, uh, chapter 19, verse 15, which is discussing the preparation that needed to be done um, before uh, B'nai Israel got the Torah, before Matan Torah. And one of the things that uh, they learned that they had to do was that men and women could not have intercourse uh, three days beforehand. So that so this is the verse, right? You should be ready for a three-day period. So based on that, they're saying if that was the interval that they needed between when husband and wife could be with each other. Um, so, you know, that tells us something about, uh, about the act of intercourse and that the semen that would come out afterwards uh, could make somebody tummy over a three-day period. The next topic. So this actually is an interesting mission because it has four different topics here. But now we get to the second piece of this Mishnah, which actually um, does go back to our topic of Shabbat. It's not here because it's talking about Shabbat. It's here because of the Asmachta that it's going to use. How do we know that we can bathe an infant who had a Brit Milah, who underwent circumcision, on the third day of his circum- after his circumcision, if it falls on Shabbat. And the pasuk they learned this from is Shanemar, Vayhi Bayom HaShlishi Behotam Koavim. So this is a pasuk from Bereshit, uh, Paraglamadalad, Pasuk Chavhei, chapter 34, verse 25, that's talking about the story of Shechem and Dina. And remember that Shechem ben Hamor wanted to marry Dina, um, and the uh, brothers, Shimon and Levi, said you had to have a circumcision, a brit milah in order to do that. Uh, they did that. And on the third day, while they were recovering, right, they came and they, uh, you know, killed everybody who was in the um, city. Um, but what we're learning from this pasuk is, is that, um, is that they were still in pain on that third day. And therefore, in order to help an infant who may be uncomfortable from the brit milah, uh, you would be allowed to, ba- to bathe them. And again, that's the asmachta. It's not something that's explicit in the pasuk. There's a hint to it in the pasuk. Now the next subject. So where do we know that you that a strip of wet, red wool would be tied on the head of the goat that was sent away to Azazel, right? So we know that on Yom Kippur, right, there would be these two goats and there was a lottery and one of the goats, goats would be sent to Azazel. And so the question is, how do you know that you would tie uh, this red, uh, sh- red strip of wool on the goat. And so again, they learn this from a pasuk in Yishayahu, 
right? So it says, if your sins are like crimson or like red, they will become white as snow. Um, so the Mishnah basically is saying that they understand that the words of the Navi here are talking about this practice of tying the red wool on the head of the goat and that it would turn white. Uh, as a sign of, you know, that all of B'nai Israel's kataim, all of their sins were forgiven um, on Yom Kippur. And then the fourth subject here in this Mishnah, how do we know that literally what it would mean is uh, anointing? But here what it means is like applying oil to somebody's body is like drinking on Yom Kippur. In other words, we know that there are five things that a person can't do um, on uh on uh, Yom Kippur, right? Eating, uh, eating and drinking, right? Washing one's body, applying oil, uh, you know, to a body, wearing shoes, and also, uh, you know, that uh, uh, husband and wife are not supposed to be together on Yom Kippur. So what do they say here? Uh, so how do we know that doing the anointing is considered to be just as bad as drinking? Um, so even though there's no proof for it, Okay, there is a hint to it. Now, it's interesting here that for the other three examples, they don't have this line here of ap al in It's only for this fourth one. And I wonder if that's some editing or something that fell out of the Mishnah itself. But that's just, you know, a, a side point here. And here they're going to quote a verse in Tehillim, Kuftet Pasuk Yudchad, chapter 109, verse 18, that says the following. Right? So it will come like water into his innards and like oil um, into his bones. So this is referring to a curse that will uh, happen to wicked people. Um, and it will be that this curse will enter his body like water and oil. So what they're saying here is that what oil obviously can't enter a person's body, but just like water enters a person's body, right? It's saying here, it's, it's comparing it that oil could even enter their bones. So what they learn from here is, is that, you know, the drink, the using of oil is like the drinking of water on Yom Kippur. So this concludes the four Mishnayot um, of Paraktet that all deal with the element of Asmachta. As we saw, this is the only Mishnah that actually contains a halacha that actually pertains to Shabbat, which is the one about Mila, um, you know, can you wash a baby on the third day? And again, I think this just from a, you know, methodological point of view, it's interesting to see, you know, the use of the asmachta because it's really taking verses, not from, you know, the Torah itself, from what I'm saying, you know, Bereshit Shemot, Vayikra, Bamidbar, Devarim. Some of them do, right? But even the Bereshit one, it's from a narrative portion. It's not from any of the law portions and also using Psukim from, Yishayahu, Tehillim, where there's really just like a hint of something. It's not an explicit law that's taught in the halakhic portions of the five books. I do find it to be an interesting Mishnah. I find it interesting also that there's, you know, if we talk about Mishnah being pretty focused lists very often, here's a focused list that isn't actually connected to each other in the same way that we might expect it to be, right? The rest of the Gemara kind of focuses like on the rest of the daf. It comes back to the to what I would have thought was the main topic because that's what the Gabbard talks about, right? Which is basically the Polata Chikvatzera, the woman who has this. I don't know exactly how we have an English 
you know, an appropriate English English phrase for her, but it's, it's where really one of those terms that's like really specific, the halakhic terminology, and I have never found a good way to explain it in English. Right. Okay. So, it, meaning, right? Because it doesn't make sense that she's having. Uh, technically, I guess you could call it a seminal omission, but it makes no sense, right? So, right. in any case, that is, you know, the, really the the rest, the focus of the rest of the daf. And there's a lot of detail here, and a lot of detail in the same way that you expect there to be any kind of investigative, you know, question of, you know, time and circumstance, right? The same way that halacha probes all the different um, aspects that one could think. And in this case, it feels a little bit less comfortable, let's say, than some other places, even given our, all of the scatological discussions of, of excrements and so on, because we are so accustomed to focusing on an aspect of privacy between husband and wife, it seems to me that here, like, yes, this is halacha, and yes, it needs to be addressed. And on the other hand, there's something kind of, as I say, a little bit less comfortable to kind of pay attention to all of this, you know, literally gory detail right juicy detail if you prefer right it's it's just it feels i don't know like prurient it feels prurient i don't mean that chazal were being prurient in this discussion i'm going to trust that they were not but it still has that sense you know in in going through the daf yeah i look i think it's an observation of a natural phenomena and they're trying to understand it and trying to understand what's the halachic ramification of it and i think for them it's not like almost a way it's not emotional in a way or it's not disgusting in a way that I think is sometimes infuriating, right? <laughs> to people sometimes when they read Gemara or see these types of discussions, it's presented in such a matter of fact way. Like, yeah, we have to discuss it because there's a mission about it and it's, it has halachic implication whether or not a woman is tummy and would have to go to the mikvah and that's it. So we're just going to discuss it and discuss, you know, how we understand it physiologically and then we'll move on to the next topic. Um, and right. it, so I, I'll accept that. Yeah. I, I think maybe that it's, uh, listen, we have our sensitivities of our own day and age also, right? Where on the one hand, there's, you know, nakedness blasted over, you know, every random television commercial kind of thing. And on the other hand, we're much more private to discuss such, as you say, matter of fact matters. Uh, we're not so matter of fact about them. Yep. So I, I think that's really what's happening here. It's just, this is matter of fact to them. It's something that needs to be discussed. It's in a lot of detail. It's interesting to see, you know, that there's even a different way, you know, even the beginning of sort of trying to figure out whose opinion it is. And there could be machlokas over some of this, you know, is very interesting to see. And, and that whole discussion, uh, you know, the Tanu uh, Rabbanan, which follows right after the Mishnah and, you know, the three different opinions of, uh, you know, Rabbanan, the rabbis and Rabbi Ishmael and of Rabbi Akiva to understand how many uh, of the three days, like, is it a full three days? Is it only five time periods? Um, you know, I think it's a very interesting discussion. And again, presented well, this, as a matter of fact. Well, I'm going to thank you for that segue because it brings me to exactly my discussion, which I thought, you know, as as per your father's Nath Nister, this is exactly what we want to talk about. I mean, give or take, you know, the day after Shavuot or the day after the Shabbat, after the day after Shavuot, I understand, right? So because... Here in this discussion of separation between husband and wife, now you have, you know, actual practical information that is necessary to understand, you know, at what point did they separate? And and it is a little bit less, um, 
you know, investigative into their personal lives as as a matter of this is this is the statement. And the question of, as you just said, what what how long was this period of separation, which I think is also significant when we speak about, you know, people who are coming to, to Mamar Harsinai and we understand that they're coming Batara in with purity and that we're coming presumably with a lack of distractions. Right. And yet, on the other hand, I think that there's a, a kind of a built in challenge to that discussion of you're going to come to Mahmoud Harsinai with a focus only on God. And I wonder how the husbands and wives handled this exactly. This, you know, mental, from, from a mentality standpoint, to deal with Yom Kippur as a day of separation while you're fasting, while you're in shul, while you're focusing on whatever wrongdoing you have done all year, that kind of thing. I understand how separation is, is you know, part of the day. Here we're talking about three days, and we're talking about they're out there in the midbar, and I imagine that there's some measure of, I would think, some measure of, we've talked about this before, some measure of fear in terms of what's about to happen. And then when it begins, we know, certainly according to the Midrashim, but even according to the biblical text, there is a good deal of tension, if not outright fear, over what's happening when you hear the voice of God. So, you know, and to think that husband and wife need to be separate for that is an interesting challenge i think again i don't know about then right maybe in that day and age the men and women were not uh i don't know hugging all the time whatever but i wonder at what point the the comfort level that is found between in one family you know was needed and yet not allowed if we're talking about the separation as we think of it today all that said the Gemara here goes on to discuss exact you know this exact question and it learns how long this time period was from moshe's behavior believe it or not, right? So it says, Allah. There's a verse that says, Moshe got up early in the morning, which is also, by the way, parallel to Avram when he got up early in the morning to go to the Akedah, right? So Moshe gets up early in the morning. He's, you know, presumably going with eagerness and zeal to get the, the, the Debrot, to get the Torah. The same way that he went up early in the morning, we can infer from that or whatever that this this verse teaches us that the, the same way he came down, that's how he went up. Well, he went up early in the morning, so the descent is also early in the morning, right? Because the verse says, Lech, red, go down, and you will then ascend together with Aaron, your brother. Right? This is all from Shemot Perk Yutet, uh, chapter 19, which is in fact part of the Torah reading on Shavuot. Makish so this is why I said there's this juxtaposition between the two texts. This is the Hekesh that we've seen before, where we infer one thing about the new verse from the old verse. Just as he went up early, so too the Yerida is coming, is going to be early in the morning. And then the government says, why do we need this? Why do we have to say that they have to separate during the morning hours? Right? And then because this is a premise, apparently, according to Rav Huna, Yisrael, they simply did not have marital relations in the daytime. But this is the premise, according to Rav Huna. So the, the, and then the conclusion is basically that they needed to know that separation time to understand exactly how long this period was that they were waiting, right? Lest there be some kind of circumstances where they might indeed have been, husband and wife might have been together, and then and then the question is, wait, did you just tell them to separate? Or or were they really supposed to separate at that time? And the answer is yes. The time period begins in the morning and it goes then for the three days until until he comes down. Until 
until he got up. I'm sorry. It's it's the three days before he goes up. Right. But I think what the point is, is that what we're seeing here is, you know, them sort of sort of trying to count out. Is it like a real full three days or, you know, is it just the concept of three days? I think that's really what this Gemara is sort of trying to figure out. That when we say a term yeah, like sorry if I was clear. the morning, the fact that he went up in the morning, the indication is that he came down, that, that he went up in the morning, the indication is he came down in the morning, and the implication then is that it was a complete three-day, 24-hour cycles, um, you know, from those mornings. Right. So, I, it's, you know, it's an interesting, it's one of these Gemaras where I think they're sort of trying to play around with the text itself and, you know, really trying to understand the timing. But if you said three days, and we traditionally believe sort of a day begins at night, but then you have this, you know, Pasuka by Yashke Moshe Baboker that, uh, you know, Moshe goes up in the morning. So where are you actually counting the three days from? Um, and, you know, it's not our traditional counting of doing it at night. Right, exactly. So, look, I think, you know, there's the next couple of pages are going to deal with uh, a few other uh, issues with timing and counting of exactly what happened with Matan Torah. Um, and we're going to see sort of a machloket with Rabbi Yossi uh, on a few dapim that sort of he has a little bit of a different timing um, than Chazal do about when exactly Rosh Chodesh Sivan was. Um, and I think the question that always gets brought up is sort of like, why was this important? You know, like, so you said that Rosh Chodesh Sivan was like on a Sunday versus a Monday, which is basically what the machlokas is over. You know, what what's the point of the like attention to detail? And again, I think this is just like it's Torah to them and really understanding it in all its depths um, and being, uh, I guess the word is accurate about it, was really important to them. And that not just to sort of be like, you know, you read the Pasuk and you're like, okay, this took place in Sivan, but really understanding when it was and what day it was and does it have any implications for how the Torah was actually given are all things that are of value to Chazal. Um, and I think it gives us an appreciation for, first of all, how closely they read text. You know, they really read it much closer than we do. Um, and sort of their love for Torah comes through in these types of, you know, uh, attempts to really understand each word for what it is and what its implications are for really understanding the narrative and the story. I would add to that. I think that this is one of those uh, points that you're saying the close reading of text is how the grammarians, the medieval grammarians who would read the biblical text so closely, right? And the question is like, well, why were they doing that? And the answer is because that's Torah and they were delving into it. And I would say here, I know we're recording before Shavuot, but I'm going to imagine coming off of Shavuot, I think it's important to us too, right? That's part of why we care about learning the daf, right? As opposed to only learning the parts of Shas that automatically speak to us right? We're going through all of the dapim. And I understand we're not going through all of the words in this podcast and everything, but but we also care. And we care about the totality and the accuracy and everything. I, I respect this. I respect this concern of figuring out exactly when it was. Right. The Gemara itself, I think, is challenging, but I care. So I guess the theme of today's episode is, you know, looking at every word and not skipping anything, even the parts that may not be topics that we want to discuss. <laughs> Which is basically <laughs> what we did today on today's dap. So with that, we'll conclude. That's our dot for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Neat Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Um, you can also find our share that we gave uh, pre-Shavuot on the Hadron website if you didn't see it on our WhatsApp group or our Facebook page. 
um, uh, leave us a comment about what you thought about this stuff or the rabbi's approach to sort of discuss some of these things very matter-of-factly. And until tomorrow, go and learn. Thank you.